and it's just an honor and a privilege to praise God and worship alongside of you, amen. I hope you'll join with me and, and just enter right in, amen. Nothing brings me more joy than giving God glory, amen. This never gets old to me, amen. I hope it never gets old to you, amen. Amen. Let's sing this song together. I bless your name. I bless your name. I bless your name. I give you honor. I give you praise. Sing it now. And I bless 
I want to see 
opens our eyes tonight, eyes of our heart that we could see His Word. Amen. Chase away all doubt and fear. Amen. In each and every one's life. Amen. We're going to Good evening, everyone, and welcome to our broadcast of the Hickory Bible Tabernacle. And uh, certainly an honor to have you with us tonight. We uh, want to jump right in and begin our broadcast this evening and uh, are thankful again for this opportunity we have to be able to come into your homes. And uh, for the next uh, 45 minutes or an hour or so, uh, take the time just to uh, grab your Bible and uh, begin to study with us here tonight and trust that what is said will be a blessing to you. Uh, I know that after a busy day and trying to get everything settled and in order for tomorrow, and uh, still recovering from today. I know it's a busy time, but it's nice just on a midweek to be able to stop and take a breath and uh, just sense the presence of the Lord, even if it's just for uh, just a brief moment. And uh, I think those uh, times are, are precious. Uh, I miss our Wednesday nights, and I, I uh, certainly enjoyed last Wednesday night. Uh, it's always a special time, and I uh, want to uh, carry on a little bit from where we were last uh, last Wednesday night. But uh, before we do that, let's begin with our prayer requests and a couple of quick announcements here. Uh, we're continuing to remember Brother Mike Holloway, uh, who is feeling better each day and uh, now getting past the virus and uh, still <clears throat> uh, uh, recovering. And we just appreciate how God is undertaking for him. And so uh, may the Lord bless you, Brother Mike. Uh, Sarah Buchanan also is in recovery. And uh, we want to remember her, brother, um, or sorry, sister uh, Haley Johnson uh, had a, a pretty sick bout with a, a virus, not the virus, but a virus. And uh, it hopefully will not spread through her family, but uh, she's doing better tonight and we're thankful for that. Also as well, we want to remember brother and sister Smith and sister Smith uh, has uh, been stricken with the headaches that go with the virus and still has those. Uh, she's going through some physical therapy, but uh, it's it's been a bit of a, a slow recovery for her. But uh, Brother Smith has been very faithful, very attentive, and helping her out where she is. So we're thankful for that. Um, also wanted to mention as well, and I think we have... Um, I, I think I have my Wednesday night photograph of uh, uh, Brother Joe Pascal. Yeah, and uh, I received word this morning that Brother Joe, uh, Lord willing, is going to be going to Princeton, West Virginia, into a therapy facility there. Uh, so he's going to be getting out of the hospital, Lord willing, on Friday. They want to move him out. Uh, they actually had him up and walking a little bit with assistance uh, today and yesterday. And uh, we're very thankful. I saw a picture, Brother Joe, and uh, he's uh, been in contact with Sister Lisa. Uh, as we mentioned before, it'd be good not to contact him at this point uh, because he's still in recovery mode and still has some uh, issues with oxygen and so forth. But uh, they want to now feel confident that they can move him out of the hospital and get him uh, into a rehab place where he can begin to gain his strength back again. So uh, we're very, uh, just just absolutely uh, delighted to hear that news and uh, very thankful for uh, everyone's prayers. And that's, I believe, what's really got them through. Uh, they told Sister Lisa that uh, he was very close to uh, the edge uh, in while he was in the hospital, probably like a lot of other uh, patients who were on a respirator. 
and their ventilator. And uh, we're just thankful that the Lord has uh, preserved our brother and now getting back on his feet again. So thank you for praying, but uh, don't don't quit until we see Brother Joe in the hospital, in the in the church and uh, giving thanks to God. So bind your requests this, this evening and uh, let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are thankful, Lord, for your many blessings and for the good things you provide for us. And now in the middle of a busy week, I pray that you would just settle our minds and our hearts, Lord, and may we just settle our spirits so that we can receive from you. Lord, we are dependent upon you in so many different ways, and now we invite your presence to come and speak to us, Lord, and make the word personal, make it real. Father, we commit our evening now into your hands. Watch over each one, Lord, we pray. And there's many needs, many people who are recovering, going through different situations, Lord, and you know about every one of them. And I pray that you would just give each one the healing touch they need and give them the strength, I pray, to recover and back on their feet again, Lord. We just commit the needs of your people into your hands now in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. And amen. If you have your phone, take it out. It's a great way for you to stay in touch here. And uh, we look forward always to hearing from you. Now, um, we're going to read a little passage of scripture here. And uh, if you don't mind, at the beginning of this uh, service here, and we're going to title it Step Into the Waters again, um, I wanted to uh, just talk a little bit about this subject of control. And uh, let's... Uh, Let's just uh, begin here and do the review portion of this part of the service here. When, when the children of Israel under Joshua crossed over into the promised land, they had three very specific commandments that were found in Joshua, the third chapter, uh, that gave them some guidance and gave them, in a sense, a parameter or boundary that they should operate in. And number one, uh, the ark was moving. The... Uh, the word of God was was under the uh, under the watchful eye of the Levites there, and they carried it into the middle of the river. And the children of Israel were, were commanded to keep their eye on that ark, to keep their eye on the word, and that's something that is uh, just a continual uh, warning for every one of us. Second thing was to sanctify. Uh, themselves, they had to make sure that nothing was brought into the promised land that did not belong there. And so this was their last opportunity before crossing over uh, to separate themselves, to wash themselves clean of anything that did not belong. And that is a continual process for us. Sanctification uh, for us is not uh, a once and done affair. It's not something that we would uh, do in the early part of our Christian walk, but it's something that we continually do because we live in a dirty world. We live in a world where there's all kinds of temptations that are ever present. And so therefore, uh, the children of Israel did this until they actually crossed over into the promised land. Thirdly, they had to step in. They had to go all in. They had to uh, commit themselves to crossing Jordan and realize that there really was no turning back. That was a, a realization that they had was that, uh, you know, to go back was uh, to be either in the wilderness or in Egypt, uh, which was a broken nation because of the power of God. And so therefore, there was really no other place for them to go. They knew by revelation, they knew by the ordinances of God that this was God's design. This was God's program. God saw them this through this far. He's going to see them through all the way. And so that was their belief. And 
therefore they had to step into the waters themselves. God never took anybody and threw them across the river. God never uh, pushed anybody off the shore. Every one of them had to be personally committed uh, to stepping into the waters and making that uh, few steps across the River Jordan themselves. Now, even though the River Jordan was wider because of the runoff in the mountains, it was still not a wide river. It's not, it's not, I've been on the Mississippi, I've been on the, uh, you know, the uh, different rivers, the different major rivers of the world, except the Amazon. And uh, I will tell you that the Jordan River is no large river. And, uh, so it was not for the length of the journey. It wasn't distance that held the people back, but it would have been unbelief that held them back. And God made it away, made it possible through dry on dry land for them to get across. They just had to be committed. That was the important thing. Now, uh, if you don't mind, take your Bible. Let's go to Hebrews eleven 13. I'll give you just a moment to find that place there. And, uh, we we have in our uh, on our opening text there the the verse of scripture that we used last time, which is Proverbs twenty one and one. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord as the rivers of water, and he turneth it whithersoever he will. And so that's the reading we had last week, and we talked a, bit, a little bit about that uh, measure of control. But now I don't want to uh, uh, I don't have these scriptures actually written here. But if you don't mind. Uh, just look at, at at three verses, actually four verses with me here, uh, just as we begin. Hebrews chapter 11 and uh, verse 13. And you will find these to be very familiar passages. Hebrews 11 and 13. The Bible said that these all died in faith. These are the people of God through the ages that uh, Paul is listing here. Not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them. So this is not something that they were forced to believe in, but they heard the report. They are, uh, they are objects of free moral agency, and they were persuaded. They believed. They accepted what was presented to them. And so this is not some sort of coercion on the part of the Holy Spirit, but this was just uh, God presenting the facts to these people, God presenting the testimonies, quickening the word to them, and they were persuaded of these promises. And they embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. So the people back in that day, uh, they were persuaded of the promises. They lived in, in expectation of the fulfillment of the promises. And so this is a very important uh, thing that uh, Paul mentions here, that they were persuaded of these things. Take your Bible again. Go back to 2 Timothy. We'll go back in a backwards order here. 2 Timothy chapter 1. Now, if you don't mind, uh, I just wanted to be sure that this was okay, but we also want to remember Ben and Rachel Pritchard and uh, their family. They've been battling the virus uh, through this week here, so if you don't mind remembering them as well. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12. Paul says in verse 11, Whereunto I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles, for the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Paul said, I am persuaded that God is able. I'm persuaded that God is all-powerful, and God is able to fulfill exactly what he's promised. Go back again to another verse of Scripture, Romans chapter 4 and verse 21. Romans 4 
and verse 21. He's talking about Abraham and Sarah here and how that they operated by faith. Let's begin in verse 20. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. One more scripture here in this little section, and we'll go back to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 18 and verse 4. Acts chapter 18 and verse 4. Paul was in the synagogue preaching here in Corinth. And he, uh, it's recorded about him in verse 4, Acts 18, verse 4. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. I, re I read all four of these scriptures because I want you to understand something, is that when God deals with us, he deals with us by, by allowing some human instrument to preach the gospel to us. And it's by the foolish of pre foolishness of preaching that a man is converted. So God does not force anybody into the body of Christ. He does not force anybody uh, into the bride of Christ. He presents the gospel, and the gospel is, uh, you know, there's a quickening power that goes with it. And for the people of God, when they hear the word of God preached in truth and in light, let me tell you, they're just excited about that, and they embrace it, and they're persuaded fully of it. And I don't know how we can explain it to somebody. We, we can't really uh, give that to somebody. It is just uh, an action of the Holy Spirit in our hearts where he quickens the word and makes it alive, makes it real. And so uh, we, we know that God in, in every way is not a negative controller. Uh, he's not somebody who forces. He's not somebody who threatens us. But he's rather someone who presents the gospel in truth and in light and in peace and in love and gives a man an opportunity to be persuaded in his own heart. And that's the way God deals with us. Now, in review, uh, we'll, we'll say very quickly, because I, I, I don't want to deal long on this. We Most of us were listening last Wednesday night, uh, but we were cut off in our broadcast. So I want to just reach back a little bit and describe some things that you, know, you may not have heard. And, and first of all, we started off and said that uh, when, we, when we talk about crossing over the River Jordan, remember, God is interested in taking you in a, in a maturity that is fully developed. He doesn't want to take you in immaturity. He doesn't want to take you in carnality. Uh, he doesn't want to take you with wrong attitudes, but rather he wants to bring us to a place of maturity. And there are certain things that he's looking for in our lives. And one of them is that there is a firm belief in every one of our hearts that God is absolutely in control. And that God has control of the reins. What happens in the world, what happens among God's people, what happens in the land of Israel is a result of God making things happen to fulfill his word. So God operates according to his own word and controls nations and peoples and individuals. He, he causes things to happen in a certain way, in a certain order. And like uh, we read uh, out of the book of Job here, he asked Job the question. He said, where was thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. And who laid the measures thereof, if thou knowest? Or who has stretched forth the line upon it? Wherefore are the foundations thereof fastened? Or who laid the cornerstone thereof? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Who caused all of this? Who, who made it all? Who ordains it all? And who can, keeps it uh, running with such precision? And he's asking those questions of Job that Job might seriously consider that, you know, certainly he's not in control, but God is. 
And that's the message that God always wants to convey to his people. Um, here's the lesson that I think is really uh, a, a wonderful uh, point that we uh, we should keep in mind always. And that is, uh, Brother Manum encourages us this in many different places. He said, don't try to line scripture up to your thought, but line yourself up to the scripture. That may seem like a simple statement and easy to say. It's a lot harder to do. He says, then you're running with God. You're moving with God. And that's what God always wanted his people to do. Uh, you remember when the children of Israel were in the wilderness? When the pillar of fire moved, you move with it. When it stopped, you stop. And that's God's program. That's the order of God, that when it's time to move out, be committed. Move out and be all there. And that's exactly what God wants us to do. But don't try to make the scripture justify your thought or your action, but rather line yourself up with the scripture and then you can always say, I did it because the word says so. And that always will bring the blessing of God when you do it that way. When you take it out of the hands of God and you're justifying your own actions and you're producing something yourself, then God does not, God is not obligated to bless that. And we want to avoid that scenario. We want to avo avoid that place. All right. So moving along quickly here, you remember we uh, reviewed the, the character of Cyrus, King Cyrus, and this was prophesied of him long before uh, he actually existed and was on the throne. And uh, he wanted Cyrus to know, uh, he says that I will loose the loins of kings and open before him the leave gates. I will go before thee. He said, I will give thee the treasures of darkness and the hidden riches of secret places. Dad, that thou knowest that I, the Lord, which call thee by name, I am the God of Israel. And that phrase in the Hebrew, it means that um, I, I am the one that's ordaining these things. And I'm also the one ordaining your place here in the whole scheme of history. You're in the, you're in the, the program. You're a part of the agenda because I have included you. Not because you're a much greater king than other kings, but because... I've ordained you to be here. And remember, uh, this is the only non-Jew who's considered a shepherd to God's people. And that's the way God refers to Cyrus. So he had some sort of a, a bond or an affection with Cyrus in some way. Uh, and he refers to him, uh, you know, affectionately as the shepherd of Israel. Uh, he's the only one outside the, the nation of Israel that was referred to that way. But he he wants Cyrus to know very, very clearly. And if you read Isaiah 45, the whole chapter, you really get that sense that God is underscoring that message to Cyrus the king. And you remember I said last Wednesday night that uh, monarchs monar uh, and monarchists often feel like they're ordained of God in some special way to be above the people. They're not commoners. They don't think or act like commoners, but God has placed them there for some reason to uh, lead the people. And they have this sort of a uh, a lofty view of themselves. It's not a healthy view because they feel like they're above the law. Many times uh, kings and, and royal families and royalty feel like they're above the law and the moral laws of God. And God never likes that. And so we'll come back to this in a moment here and we'll deal with this. And uh, I've got another quotation there from um, 
from Isaiah 45. Now, we we uh, got to this point, and I think some people were uh, cut off there in the broadcast, but let me just re- review this uh, very quickly here. There's three types of control that we want to consider in this whole idea uh, of making sure that we don't take this attitude across the river, the, the, the negative parts. Number one, that God is in control of everything. Uh, Isaiah 14, the Lord of hosts hath sworn, saying, surely as I have thought, so shall it come to pass. As I have purpose, so shall it stand. Nobody has a better idea than God. Nobody has an alternative plan that's going to be successful. God is in control of everything. The second thing is this idea of self-control and the discipline that we have as believers and the power that we have as believers, but also uh, the exercise of control in our own lives because God does not do every single thing for us. Sometimes he puts the weapon in our hands so that we might destroy the enemy uh, that, that follows us or pursues us. And God wants us to do that. And then there is an unhealthy form of control. And this is the one that we want to deal with uh, at length, but uh, we'll just see how far we can get tonight in dealing with that. So when we talk about good control, uh, in The Power of Transformation, 1965, and I will tell you, I will guarantee you that there are quotes and statements and scripture verses here that span the beginning of the Bible all the way to the end, and then also from the beginning of Brother Ram's ministry right to the very end. It's been an amazing study. Now, here's what Brother Branham said in 1965. All of this great thing he knew would come to pass after he spoke it, he could take a rest. He's referring to God in Genesis when uh, God spoke everything into existence and rested on the seventh day. He said he had everything under his control. His seed was his word, and his word is the seed. Now, if you want to find a Bible section that describes this, go to Hebrews 4. And uh, in that passage, Paul writes and says that, Hey, God spoke everything, and because he knew that his word would come to pass, he could rest even before it was actually fulfilled because he had complete faith in the spoken word. And Paul says that we who believe also enter into rest because if God has spoken it, it's a word that's going to come to pass, and so therefore we can rest even before we see it. So, for instance, and in, in our context that we've been talking about in church lately, that we believe that, hey, there's going to be a tribulation. We believe there's going to be a change of, the, of our bodies. We believe there's going to be a marriage supper. It's not here yet. We haven't seen it, but we rest in the fact that it's not our word. It's God's word, and therefore it is going to happen. And that's what's important. That's what's critical. Okay, so in the same way that God rested in his own word and his own promises, like seeds, we also can rest in the fact that everything is under control. And so we, like God, can believe and rest in that promised uh, word that God has spoken. And uh, Hebrews 4 is where we find it, uh, if you want to look it up. Everything would be all right because he said for it to bring forth of its kind, transforming only to its kind. His word had to be of its kind. If he said a palm tree, he didn't mean a palm and an oak mixed together. He meant a palm tree here and an oak tree over here, everything positionally in its place. So when God spoke things, it was pure, and it came to pass exactly as as God had said. Nothing was mixed. That's why the fall and serpent seed is actually so important, because this was Satan's work at hybriding God's word. 
And then he says, oh, if we could only learn that, that what part of the word we are, we must take our place no matter what it is. So when you take your place because of God's word, as a member of the bride, uh, maybe as a member of the fivefold ministry, uh, as a, a member of an assembly, as, uh, you know, a member of, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a part of the work that God is doing, a part of the program what God's doing, hey, you can rest in that. If God's ordained you to do a certain thing, you can rest in that. And just trust that God has, uh, you know, got everything under control in your life. You know, for instance, a, a mother, and very often mothers are, are unsung. They are not uh, praised, really, for the job they do and the work and the sacrifice that's involved. But a real mother, if she takes her place and, you know, she has a commitment to deal with her children, raise her children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, be a real wife to her husband. That's a, that's a tremendous thing in the eyes of God, a tremendous thing. And so therefore, uh, God will honor that. And you don't need to be ashamed of that at all, but God sees that and he, he recognized that. Or a woman who's supportive in her family in some way, grandmother, or however uh, your, your role is. We should never under undervalue uh, a person in their place, no matter what role they play. Uh, you could be, uh, you know, you could be painting a wall, you could be driving a truck, you could be switching buttons on a sound system. You could be taking up an offering in the church. But if that's where God ordains you to be and that's your place, let me tell you, uh, there ain't, there's not enough devils to pull you out of that place. And God sees it and God honors that person taking their place by faith is a great thing in the eyes of God. All right. Now, <clears throat> we, we know that God's idea is never to bring people into bondage, but rather to set people free. God, your freedom is something that God's interested in, just like your spiritual growth is something that God is very dedicated to. But God sets us free not to do whatever we want or whatever comes in our mind. God sets us free to be what he's ordained us to be. He sets us free to become what he's predestinated us to be. And when we are set free by Christ, then we are forgiven of sins. The shackles of, of the bondage of sin are broken. The shackles of the world are broken. And we are free to walk in the light as he is in the light. And then it's not us, but Christ in us, the hope of glory. And he becomes the governor of our lives, the governor of our actions. This is important now, this scripture verse. So hold on to it there. He's standing tonight, knocking, trying to get in to control you, to make you what you should be. Is the Holy Spirit a controller? Absolutely. But to control you, to lead you and guide you, to correct you, to make you what you should be, to take away the world from you and to make you new creatures of his. If the world is after you, you should ask God to take it away. If, if, if there are temptations that seem to overwhelm you, you know what? You should ask God to deliver you from those. If your marriage is weak, you should ask God to give you the the grace and the wisdom to, to strengthen that relationship because that relationship is important. If your children are wayward, ask God to give you the wisdom to know what you should do, maybe to say a word in season that would soften their hearts. There are, there are many ways that, uh, you know, the Holy Spirit has set us free to be able to become what we should be. It's not just a theoretical uh, issue, but this is really what the Holy Spirit has has done is is to to break the shackles of the world office and the and the the temptations of sin so that we can become what He wants. That's why He gives you the things that He has given you. 
He's given you gifts. He's given you talents. He's given you understanding. He's given you revelation. He's given you forgiveness. He's given you communion. He's given you many things so that you can become what God wants you to be and what you should be. And that is God's desire, more than even your desire. That's exactly what it is. So therefore, we, uh, we, we want to show then out of a good heart what God has set us free to become. Because the scripture says, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is good, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is evil. For the abundance of the heart, out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaketh. So our testimony should advance this cause. Our testimony should declare that Jesus Christ has set me free. And our testimony should also declare to others that he can set you free. And our testimony should be that out of the heart that God has restored, our testimony is singular. It is to seek first the kingdom of God. We're not trying to seek another marriage. We're not trying to seek, uh, you know, more, more of this world's goods. We're not trying to seek more influence and power and money. We're not trying to seek a place in this kingdom. We are trying to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And we believe that all the other things in this life we have need of will be added. But our, our, our singular testimony is, is this here. Out of this good treasure of my heart comes this confession that uh, God is good. God's in control. God has chosen me. I'm a son of God. I cannot fail. He's made it possible for me to share in the light and walk in the light of this hour. And you know what? By God's grace, I'm going to make it. And that should be our testimony. Yes, yes, there are difficult times. Yes, there are things happen in my life I don't understand. Yes, there are things that are hard that I face, but I'm still in the will of God and God is good. God's in control. And if God has allowed something difficult to come my way, it's because God is proving something in me that I ordinarily would not submit to, but God changes the circumstances to bring out qualities in me that are necessary. All right, so let's put it this way, all right? When it comes to this idea that God's in control, we find that God gives a control tower to you to give it to you, to give to you the things you need. There's a control tower in the body that tells you the need that's needed in your body, and it's brought about by a thirst. So if you're a dehydrated, and we've, you know, this past year with so much sickness, we've seen lots of people that have been dehydrated. Your body begins to sh shout out the fact that you need fluid. You need uh, maybe some intervention uh, to, to bring the moisture level back in your body. But your body lets you know that when there's something that is not right, God's given you a control tower to let you know. When, uh, when, when there are things that go wrong in the body, like um, if you're traveling somewhere and you're lost, I think every one of us know that sinking feeling that I don't know where I am. There's, a, there's an emotion that goes with being lost on a country road. We have control towers that God's given to us. These control towers were not given to us to make it to heaven. They're not going to guide you to heaven, but they will guide you through this life. Also, Brother Branham said, there is a control tower in your soul, tells you the spiritual things that you have need of, something in your spirit, and by this you can uh, by this can tell what kind of life is controlling you. So, for instance, the conviction that the Holy Spirit brings 
urges you to do something because it'll make you miserable until you act on it. For instance, if if somebody uh, if there's an offense committed and you need to ask forgiveness f- from somebody, then let me tell you, you can be pretty uncomfortable until you actually go through the process of seeking forgiveness. And that's what God wants to see. He wants you to respond to the signals that are given by the control tower in the same way that you want to uh, respond to the signals that are given in the physical body, in the spiritual part of your life, you want to respond to that. So if God is leading you, I always remember uh, back when I was living up in Canada and a young minister, I, I remember very clearly one Saturday and I just felt really strongly convicted to go to a certain town. It wasn't far from us. It was maybe about 45 minutes from our city. And I just, I didn't know anybody in that place. I didn't know anybody in that city. And, uh, it was just a little town, uh, community along the coast. And, uh, I thought how strange, you know, that God would send me down there for no apparent reason. So I told one of my brothers and I said, I just feel this real urge, this real leading to go down to this little, uh, little community down the way. And they said, well, it's funny. They said, somebody wrote us a letter. Because uh, we had a little radio broadcast about the message. And they said, uh, somebody wrote us a letter from down there. And they said, why don't you take the letter and go down and visit these people? Never knew them. They were not believers, but they'd responded something to the broadcast. So I took the letter, went down, and and um, went down to this little community. And hardly had ever been there before in my life. And went in, uh, rolled around the community, asked people about this address and this family. And they directed me to a little house there and went to it, walked up to the door. Never, I, I didn't do things like this and walked up to their door. And when I went there, I said, Hey, are you, are you so-and-so? And they said, yes. I said, well, I'm, I'm uh, brother Barry. And, and, uh, you wrote a letter about a broadcast that we have. And I'll tell you what, now he just wept. He was just really overcome that somebody would actually come from the city and, and visit his household and uh, that whole family was baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ a week later. And uh, they were so excited and so on fire for God. And they were just like a ripe seed waiting to happen. And uh, I, I was so blessed to, to be just be a part of that, be a little part of that. And I felt like uh, Philip, you know, going to the Ethiopian eunuch, where there was a people, a family just waiting there. No other people came from that community. <clears throat> they they actually uh, sold their house and moved into the city where the church was. Uh, they were they were at that point they were very committed to the message and uh, came in with all their hearts. So sometimes you don't always know, but that's a that's a signal that's sent from the control tower and it urges you to do something. And I'll tell you what, I could not shake that that leading. I could not shake that feeling at all. And so that's the way the Holy Spirit wants to work. He wants to have that level of control and for, for you to have that sensitivity that what he says, that's really what he, he wants you to do. And you can recognize that as being the voice of God. But Brother Branham adds this little part in the second paragraph here. He says, when you see what your desires are, then you can tell what's creating this desire that you have. So if you had a desire to, uh, you know, make a lot of money and, uh, you know, you found an opportunity to steal and you started to dwell on that, you can tell where that desire actually comes from because of what it's trying to get you to do. Think now. You can tell where a desire is coming from by what it's trying to get you to do. And when we see what the desires are, 
then you can tell the source of the inspiration. He goes on to say, there's a certain thing that you thirst for. It can tell you in your soul what this desire is by the nature of the thirst you have. I hope you can understand that. So when we stop and evaluate, what is it I long to do? What is it I dwell on? What is it I lust for? What am I passionate about? And that'll tell you where that desire comes from. And if the desire is contrary to the Word of God, you know it doesn't come from the Holy Spirit. So that's kind of a very simplistic way of judging where your thoughts are coming from. Let's move on. Let's go a little bit further here because I want to watch my time. Self-control. I want to dwell on this for a little, just a few minutes here. The scripture says the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. And that word temperance is self-control. Brother Branham prayed one time, 1951. Now, while we are here together and all of us long in the same thing, make us true stewards and may you shape our lives by self-control. So from the Apostle Paul and also from uh, Brother Branham in the last day, self-control is a part of the Christian experience. It's not that the Holy Spirit does everything for you. It is rather that he wants you to shape your life or be characterized by self-control. So the example that Paul gives here is in 1 Corinthians 9, I think I mentioned it last week, that he said, I keep under my body and bring it into subjection. In other words, I'm not relying on anybody else to do this. I'm not asking anybody else to do this. But this is something that's under my domain. I am the ruler of this kingdom. And so therefore, I'm going to get under my body and I'm going to tell my body where it's going to go and what it's going to do. I'm going to tell it that I'm going to be going to church every Sunday. I'm going to not let anything interfere with that. I'm going to make sure that my spiritual life has priority. I'm going to be in control, the master of my own physical person, because my body is not born again, and it will go the easier way if we let it. He says, lest that by any means I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Hang on to that verse here. We're going to come to that in a minute. Temperance, by definition, means this. It means to be of sound mind or to be in one's right mind. And it means to ex exercise self-control or to put a moderate estimate upon your own self, thinking of oneself soberly, and in doing so, you curb your own passions. So you don't want to have an inflated idea about your own ability and your own self and your own power. Remember, God's in control. Number two, I control this fleshly house that I live in by the grace of God. And I'm not going to think of myself too highly because I haven't done this or I have done this for a long period of time. Hey, it's all by grace. And so I'm going to make sure I don't give an opening for the devil to get in here. Now, in Mark chapter 5, 15, you remember the uh, demoniac who was, uh, uh, the devil was cast out of him. Legion was cast out by Jesus, and they went into the swine and ran down into the water. It says that, and they came to Jesus, the people in the town came to Jesus and saw him uh, that was possessed with the devil and had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind. He was temperate, in other words. He was sitting there, and he was in his right mind, he was now of sound mind, and he was absolutely aware of the fact that he's now in this position because of the help of someone else. It wasn't his own discipline. 
It wasn't his own decision. It was rather something that Jesus did by, by grace and by his own mercy. And so this is the way that the Bible uses this word. We find it in other places as well. For I say, Romans 12, through the grace of God given unto me, that every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. So we should never think of ourselves above what we ought to think. Titus 2, young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded. Young men have a sense of invincibility. I won't get sick. I won't get in trouble. I don't have any fear. I can face anything. I can go anywhere. I can do anything. Lots of young girls think the same way. Oh, I won't get in trouble. Nothing will happen to me. And they ought to be sober-minded. Not that we live in our, and live our life according to fear, but we should be careful and we should be sober-minded. We ought to say, I'll do this, Lord willing. But the end of all things, 1 Peter 4, 7 says, the end of all things is at hand, be ye therefore sober and watch under prayer. So in other words, there's an increased sense of temperance in the last day because we're living at the end of things. And because we're living at the end of things, the, Satan's going about in a, in a more... Uh, in a more aggressive way, in a more proactive way. And Satan is out to try to spoil you, to try to rob you of your victory, uh, to try to lay traps for you. And so therefore, as we, as we approach the end of all things, there is a call for a greater sobriety and a watchfulness on our part. And, and Jesus says, and Peter also says, that we should watch unto prayer. So that's how it's accomplished, that we stop, we begin to commune with God in a maybe a greater way because we're living at the end when Satan knows his time is up. Okay? So watch what Brother Branham says about Moses here. He went down and he smote the rock in the wilderness and he got anger. He lost control of himself. He got all worked up. He got excited because of the people. And he just smote the rock again. And we know that he was a prophet sent from God. God entrusted him with that power. But let me tell you something. There was 2 million people there. I will assure you, everyone didn't agree with Moses. In the same way that as a pastor, I know, and I'm not referring just to my own assembly, but years of experience have taught me that no matter how good your plans are, no matter how carefully prayed about your decisions are, everyone's not going to agree. And many times people are not reluctant to vocalize that disagreement. We know it wasn't God's will for Moses to do that, Brother Branham says. We'll admit that. But Moses had power to bring it, whether it was God's will or not. So God did not prevent Moses from, from striking the rock twice. Brother Branham goes on to say, we know it was against God's will, but God had entrusted his servant with that power. So in the same way, we're not prophets. And we don't have the level of power and authority that prophets have where they can speak and certain th things happen. But I will guarantee you that you have a certain measure of control over decisions about your own life. Otherwise, Paul would never have said in 1 Corinthians that I get under my body and bring it into subjection. Uh, if that was all done by the Holy Spirit, you wouldn't have to worry about it. Uh, your body wouldn't resist. But let me tell you, your body continually resists. And sometimes it resists because of what we fail to do. And so here's Brother Branham talking about Moses and how that he had the power to, to do something, whether it was God's will or not. And let me assure you, you have the same opportunity.
Now, there's some things we can't control, some things that are out of our reach. The person that Brother Branham is referring to, the subconscious and dreaming like prophets do, um, and he refers to it this way, the person's that dreaming is not sound asleep. But you people here that does not dream dreams, your subconscious will be back in a place where you do not reach to it in sleep. You can't help that. You were born that way. Now, I don't understand that. I don't understand why some people dream. I'm not a big dreamer. I've had very few uh, dreams in my life. I've had very few significant dreams or sensible ones. I've had some really, really strange ones uh, for sure. But you can't help that because there are things that happen in the subconscious or spiritual realm that you don't control. And so he says there are some things that has the rulership over you and made you that way you can't help it. And you people who dream dreams, you can't help that. You don't have no control of it. It's your subconscious. Remember, whether you dream or whether you don't dream, everything that happens in that spiritual realm has got to go through the filter of the word in the same way that all the leadings and feelings and impressions you have, they have to go through the filter of the word because there are some things that God has gifted you with and some things he hasn't. There are some things that God's enabled you to do and some things he hasn't. Whatever it is that you're led to do or you experience like this. There are some people who are gifted. There are some people who are ministers or some people who are singers. And whether you have the gift of music or prophecy or dreaming or whatever else uh, that it is that you have, you have to be mindful of the fact that there is a filter for believers and everything has to coincide with the Word of God. It's got to jive with that. It's got to sync with that. And then you're moving on with God. Okay, that's what's important. So Brother Branham was very careful because he lived among a, uh, you know, a gifted people who were taught for years and years and years that unless you have gifts and manifest gifts, you don't have the Holy Spirit. So he's not taken away from that fact. He's not taken away from the fact that people in the body have gifts and those gifts can operate correctly. But it is important for us to understand that whatever you do has to be run through the filter of the Word of God. And there are some things that you don't have control over. A righteous man falling down before the wicked is as a troubled fountain and a corrupt spring. It is not good to eat much honey. So for men to search their own glory is not glory. And he that hath no rule or restraint over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls. Now, let's I, I, I put in this, this little uh, passage of scripture here for the last verse in verse 28. He that hath no restraint over his own spirit, if you cannot rule your own spirit, then Solomon compares you to a city that's broken down and without walls. Guess what happens to a city when the walls are broken and uh, the, the, uh, the city is without gates and so forth? The enemy can run in anytime it wants to. You're vulnerable to attack by the enemy when, you, when your defenses are down. A man that has no rule over his own spirit is vulnerable to attack by Satan because a person can fly off the handle anytime something goes wrong. They lose that temper. They get angry. They say things they don't really mean. They say things they should never say. And it's because, and they feel bad because they do it, but it's because they have no defense. When it comes to an issue like that, and here's the way Brother Branham said to deal with it, if you have a temper, he said, you go to the other extreme. You go to the other side over here, and you ask God to give you restraint over those things. 
In other words, it's like Paul said in Ephesians 4, he said, if, uh, he said if, if a man will steal, let him steal no more, but rather let him labor with his hands, the thing which is good that he may have to give to others who have need. Uh, if you're the kind of person who steals wood off your neighbor's wood pile and it's all split and stacked, then you need to stop that and you need to go find some wood, split it, give it back to your neighbor and go find uh, somebody else who has a wood stove and make sure they have enough wood. Just give it to them. So we're going to the other extreme. In other words, brother, or, sorry, Solomon is saying exactly the same thing. If you have no restraint over your own spirit, you're vulnerable. But now go back to the, to the previous two verses here. A righteous man falling down before the wicked is as a troubled fountain and a corrupt spring. So if a righteous man is vulnerable and he falls, let's say he falls in adultery or something, and he falls down before the wicked, you know what the wicked, it, it's, like, it's like bad water. It, the wicked will say in their own heart, see, I knew there was nothing to that. I knew that that was nothing but a, a mental conception they had. And there's no such thing as the power to resist and the keeping power of the Holy Spirit. It's a confirmation to the wicked that the gospel is not true when a righteous man falls down before them. It's like bad water, and the bad water stays bad. There's no, there's no purification of the water. 27, it is not good to eat too much honey, so for men to search their own glory is not glory. Honey is a good thing, but to eat too much of it is certainly going to affect a person in a negative way. When men try to heap glory on themselves, it is not a good thing. If you're going to say something good, say it about somebody else. But when you project yourself and you put yourself out there, uh, it's not a good thing because you're trying to project something that's, that's going to ruin the testimony. 28 is the same thing. He that hath the, no rule over his own spirit, in other words, you're vulnerable to the enemy and you're projecting something that the Holy Spirit has not caused. It's like a city that's broken down and without walls. There's a lot of wisdom in those three verses right there, let me assure you. And so we want to maintain the right testimony. And part of the way we do that is to exercise restraint and to control our spirit. I'm sorry, we have not got more time here. Let's look at unhealthy control, because I want to deal uh, specifically with this section here. And this section has become a little bigger than what I, what I can deal with in one online Bible study. But let's introduce some definitions here. Controlling behavior. And when we talk about unhealthy control now, we're talking about living with an angry and a controlling person. Someone who tries to manipulate another person. So let's, by definition, let's look at what a controlling behavior looks like. It is an action designed to exploit, intimidate, or manipulate somebody for their own reasons. This involves depriving another person of their independence. And to show domination in this type of behavior is extremely dangerous because it leads to other types or forms of abuse. So unchecked, someone who's a controller, and if their personality is open to that, they can go on to some really damaging behaviors as a result of control. Why does a person control other people? 
Typically, it's a reaction to the fear of losing control. That's a really powerful statement. People who are controllers are afraid, they're scared to death to lose control of a situation. People who struggle with the need to be in control often fear being at the mercy of others, and this fear may stem from traumatic events that left them feeling helpless and vulnerable or whatever else. So, for instance, if you have a, uh, a, a person who, uh, let's say, just for example, we say a minister, and a minister has a, <laughs> and I can name several, who have the congregation under their thumb, and I think you know what that means. They have a congregation that does not do anything unless they get permission or direction from the pastor. It's generally a fear on the part of the pastor of losing control. And he does not have confidence in the experience of other people. He doesn't have experience in the talents and gifts that God's put in other people. I like to delegate. I like to have other people share the burden, share the responsibility. I, not that I like to burden other people, but I, I like to use the gifts that God has placed within our body, our local assembly. We are blessed with many people, and I have often prayed, I'll be honest with you, I've often prayed, Lord, how can I properly use all these people who want to be used? They want to exercise their gifts and their knowledge, and they've got experience from other places, and they, they have a willing heart. They have a servant's heart. They're willing to do more than just stack chairs. And how can I empower them? How can I help bring out the qualities that you've placed in them to edify the body? Well, let me tell you, there are people in our church who are gifted in the area of finance. There are people in our church who are gifted in the area of music. There are people who are, imagine if I ran the music in our church. My goodness, what kind of a fiasco would that be? I have probably too much influence already in that area. But I will tell you, um, I, I just I love to see the the worship and the singing and the instruments and the playing and the gifts that are that are on display. I, I just I love it. I love when people sing specials. I love when the congregation gets anointed to worship God because God delights in the praises of His people, and there are people anointed uh, to do that. I'm not one of them, but I just delight in it. I believe the same way the Holy Spirit does. There are people in our church that are anointed as deacons. There are people in our church who are anointed to do the work of trustees. There are people in our church that are anointed to do the, uh, you know, the, 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 the kinds of uh, work of caring for people. I've mentioned this before. And my goodness, there's no way that uh, a pastor could do all of that work. That's why in the book of Acts, the deacons came about in the first place, because Peter said, how can we wait on tables and how can we, uh, you know, uh, make sure all the physical needs are met and still uh, wait on God for the uh, understanding of the word? And he said, we can't do it. So therefore, we're going to bring in other people. And that's that's the idea that is conveyed in this uh, idea of sharing the burden and sharing the load. And let me tell you, that's a very important thing. You know, we have, uh, I have so many willing people in my assembly. I feel like I'm blessed beyond measure, blessed out of proportion. If I was a controller, I would be afraid to let anybody make a decision and anybody do anything because uh, I'd be afraid of, of losing control. I will tell you, I have no fear of losing control because I know where God has placed me, but I also know where God has placed you.
And when we all operate within that channel that God's given to us, the body is blessed. Let me go a little bit further now and talk about this idea of controlling behavior. These are some signs. I want you to watch this. People who are controllers insist on having things their way, and they make you think that everything's your fault. People who are controllers insist on having things their way. There is only one way, and that is their way, or it's the highway. And people who are controllers, they can make you feel pretty uncomfortable when things don't go their way. They can make you think that everything is your fault. Everything that goes wrong is your fault. And that's a pretty uncomfortable place to be. They refuse, number two, to accept blame. They generally are never wrong. They find it very hard to apologize. They're not quick to apologize. Apology comes because of something extreme. And they realize they've really crossed a line. Number three. People who are in control need to be the center of attention. When I say that, they will either do things in an exaggerated way which are good to be the center of attention. They'll give away money. They will be loud. They will uh, you know, be the, the center of focus. Or if they can't get attention that way, for instance, if I wanted to get attention with my singing, I'd realize... I'm not going to get much applause by doing that. You would do something on the negative side to get attention, even if it's negative, because you always got to have the focus of attention on you if you're a controller. Number four, they like to have the focus on themselves. Number five, they want to control the money. Now, in relationships, uh, and sometimes you'll find it in businesses, you'll find people who want to control the finances because that's usually kind of the, the, life, uh, the life force. And uh, they want to have the first say, the last say, and they want to control the discussion. Number six, they dictate, they begin to dictate where you can go and where you can't go. Number seven, people who control know no boundaries. They know no boundaries. Now, you can see that this is going to take a little bit longer than just what we have tonight. And it's we're already, in a sense, at our time. Let me just say a few things, though, about this idea, which is found in number one. People who are controllers insist that everyone does things their own way. Even small matters, even small things, they like to have people do things their way. They sometimes will control things that you wear. And even if it's impractical, they don't like people to disagree with them. When you go against somebody who's a controller <clears throat> and likes to have things their way, they will very often try to get control back by pouting, by giving the silent treatment, by withholding certain things that they ordinarily should not do. They can throw tantrums. Uh, they, can, they can do other things to manipulate somebody, make somebody feel really bad because they realize this is beginning to slide out of my control. <clears throat> and I don't want to have that happen. 
when you think about this, and the idea is this. Uh, let me explain it this way, and I've done this many times in, in personal conversations, that when a person fails to deal with or confront the things that they have wrong within them, things that need to be corrected, they will project a problem onto everybody else. And they have an attitude of, my goodness, if everybody else got their act together, I'd be happy. If everybody else, you know, did the right thing, I'd be happy. <laughs> After all, it's not me that has the problem. It's everybody else. And therefore, I'm going to project the problem onto everyone around me. A controller will project the problem onto somebody whose family or somebody who's close quicker than they will upon a stranger. Again, let me give you an example. In a church, I remember a minister, and I knew the backstory of this minister, and it was a terrible reproach, but he was kicked out of denominational circles because he had committed adultery and came in around the message community and founded a, an independent, very independent church. And this minister had real moral problems. He had never repented of the immorality that caused him to commit adultery. He only got caught. Getting caught is different than repentance. So because he still had that spirit on him, he pastored a church, got a following, took uh, a false doctrine out of the message, and because he was uh, pastor of the church, he continually preached to the people about holiness and about sanctification and about living clean and living right. And he's the minister, and I think I've mentioned this before, that uh, he had the deacons measure the length of the sisters' skirts above their ankles. And if they were not long enough, he would not actually let them in the church. They were constantly reminded of the fact that they were not holy enough, not sanctified enough, not pure enough, not spiritual enough. And they lived under this whole cloud of legalism all their lives. Let me tell you, there are many people still affected by that legalism. There are, there are offspring, grandchildren and great-grandchildren of those people who I know who were affected by the legalism of that, uh, of that uh, minister's way. But I will tell you something. Those people never had the problem. The vast majority of those people never had a problem with immorality. It was him who had the problem, but he never faced it. He projected it onto the people. And that's where that term projection comes from. He, he Rather than face the problem, he projected it onto the people and controlled them by making them feel guilty all the time. And he insisted on having his way, insisted on preaching that, and insisted on the fact that they were the ones who were at fault, not him. And he made them think that they were the ones that needed repentance. He made them feel like they need to come to the altar, not him. And he controlled them by that conviction. He controlled them by the guilt. And he controlled them always by hanging judgment over their head. And that congregation lived in bondage. And many of them were like that crow Brother Branham described, who was tied to the clothesline. You remember that? And some farmer came along and untied the wire from the crow, and the crow didn't know what to do. He was just kind of hanging around on the clothesline. And the farmer said, hey, 
you're able to go free, but the bird never knew how. He lost his sense of freedom. He lost his joy. He lost the fact that he could be free from the shackles of this now and didn't even know really what it was, what it felt like to be free because he'd lived so long under the bondage of that minister. And it was projected onto him that he was wrong and he never was wrong. And that crow stayed there. Brother Branham said a lot of people in churches wind up like that crow. They stay there because they were controlled for so long they forgot what freedom feels like. This kind of control is the negative control that I'm referring to. And people who are controllers of this kind will often use quotes and Bible verses to keep people in bondage. And I want to assure you and end on this note, the Bible was never meant to bind men or to keep them shackled. Jesus said, he whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And we were not set free to be brought into shackles again by the Holy Spirit. You've been set free to become what God predestinated you to be. And I will tell you something, that there are ministers who spent their life forcing people in their churches to agree with their doctrines. And many times their doctrines were false. Because if the Holy Spirit inspires a doctrine that's true, you never need to force the bride to believe it. They're going to believe it by revelation and not by legislation. You don't need to force the bride to believe what's true. They're going to agree with what's true. And when a controller is in the pulpit, they'll insist on having their way and make you think that everything that's contrary to their teaching is everybody else's fault. And my goodness, if everybody would get their act together, you know what? This church would be a spiritual place. And they'll make people feel condemned because they have another thought, even if the other thought is true. And boy, that's a tragedy. You can see I need more time than just this, and I'm sorry to keep you a little bit longer. That's only number one. But I will tell you that a controller insists on having things their way. There is no discussion. There is no other opinion. Nobody else really knows what's right. I have going to have my way. And if I don't have my way, let me tell you, everyone is going to pay. Everyone is going to feel the fact that I don't get my way. And a controller, let me tell you, What's the point of getting up out of bed in the morning if you can't control the world around you? That's the way a controller faces the day. And if a controller doesn't get their way, they're going to kick, scratch, fight. They're going to bite. They're going to do whatever they can to get back in control, no matter what devices they have to use in order to get there. And one of the ways they're going to do it is to verbally abuse people around them and make them feel like everything else is everyone else's fault but mine. And when you see somebody consistently projecting their attempts to control everyone onto other people like family or children or spouses, let me tell you, you've got a wrong spirit that's moving. That does not belong in a believer's life. Sad to say it exists, and sad to say as many people don't ever even recognize that they have a problem like this. If I could know how to reverse this in somebody, I would sure tell you. But my prayer is that the Holy Spirit will reveal to you anything in your life that even resembles what I just described.
because I will assure you of this, that attitude, that, uh, that spirit of control does not belong in God's kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray now that you would just bless your word and breathe upon it. Lord, make it real to every heart. You're a God who convicts. You're a God who brings correction into every life. And Lord, if there be any of this in me, I pray you'd slay it. I pray that you would destroy it. I pray that you would bring me to a place of repentance if there's anything in me that resembles this kind of control. I want to give people the liberty in the same way that you have given me liberty to believe, to have our thoughts, Lord, to express our opinions and to have the joy of the Lord in a way that's unique to every individual. Lord, I pray that you would help us if we're going to try to control anything or anyone, that we would control our own spirit and not be like a city without walls. But let us bring our own spirit under control first before we try to dominate anybody else's spirit. Lord, I pray that we would be committed to this as we cross the waters, as we step into the river, that, Lord, you would just convict our hearts and deal with us, Lord, according to the spirit of grace and mercy. Deal with us, Lord, not in judgment, but deal with us in mercy, I pray. Father, show us, teach us, correct us where we're wrong. We love you and we thank you, and we ask your blessing now upon the assembly. Lord, thank you for this little time of study tonight, and Lord, may your Holy Spirit just be present among us. We give you our time. We give you the balance of our week. We pray that you would help us to do great things for the kingdom. Heal the sick. Minister to those who are needy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. God bless you. Sorry to be long in getting to number one. Uh, we'll, we'll deal with all of these uh, in uh, in, in services that are upcoming. May God bless you. We'll look forward to uh, being in touch and seeing you on the weekend. May God bless you each one.